Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello all, this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and I'm just coming to you today to say thank you so much for getting the show into its sixth year. It's the show's fifth birthday today. It's absolutely what a phenomenal ride it's been. I've met so many great people, I've done so many great things, made some such lifelong friends through the show. And it's been my pleasure to bring you the tales that have done over the past five years. Let's look to the next five years, which I can't wait for. As I always do on the show's birthday, I share one of the Patreon episodes for everybody and it's my pleasure to bring to you a tale that I've entitled The Exploding Dad. Thank you so much all, I hope you enjoyed the tale and let's look to the next five years. From Paul and Pixie, the true crime enthusiast. The case that I've selected for this bonus time around I thought had to have the catchy name that I've given it and is truly a fascinating and unique one from the annals of British criminal history. We are heading back somewhat further than we usually go for the episode, this time to back midway through the Second World War in 1943 and down to the town of Raleigh in the county of Essex for a sad yet remarkable tale. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events involving injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please do whatever you do when you're listening in and join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled The Exploding Dad. Nowadays, with the proliferation of terrorist attacks, bombings are sadly commonplace occurrence, aren't they? Think about attacks on such places as the Manchester Arena, the atrocities that have been committed by the IRA, and what we see happening in Israel, Palestine, Rwanda, the list goes on, doesn't it? But it wasn't so back in the UK in 1943. Although the country was into its third year of the Second World War, the only explosions that the urban populace were accustomed to hearing were those resulting from enemy air raids. And they were hoping that things like these would soon be a thing of the past. For in that summer of 1943, 
the tides of battle were at last turning in the favour of the Allies. In that July, Sicily had been invaded, the prelude to a long and bloody but ultimately successful Italian campaign, whilst in Russia, the war of attrition was continuing with the launching by the Red Army of a massive counter-offensive in the direction of Oral, a hundred miles south of Moscow. Back here in the UK, the population were determined to enjoy what they could of that summer, despite the rationing that was in place, the air raids and the other wartime irritations. Although thankfully, dog shit like Married at First Sight Australia didn't exist back then. Give me the bloody war any day over that nonsense. And over the weekend of the 24th and 25th of July, some 15,000 people had descended down into South End, taking advantage of the seaside resort being one of the few in the UK that didn't have a ban on trippers going there. Those who didn't fancy mingling on the beach with the great unwashed, and you can't blame them really, can you? could stop at home and listen to the progress of the war from no less than a choice of 12 Home Service and Forces news bulletins, or could enjoy shows such as Music While You Work, Jack Payne and His Orchestra, or Sunday Half Hour, which granted sounds about as thrilling as learning of the history of concrete, but I'd still prefer it to watching Bridge of Lies. Yes, it's still bollocks. Have a look if you dare. But it's doubtful if the appeal of any of these either indoor or outdoor pursuits held any sway for the occupants of Summerfield, a large house located at number 19, London Hill, in the Essex market town of Raleigh, following the horrific events that had befallen the family who lived there on the afternoon of the Friday, the 23rd of July. Summerfield was a household that, shall we say, wasn't the happiest home on earth. Attached to it was a flour mill, which still remains there today, although the property is now occupied by solicitors, and that for the majority of his working life had been run by the head of the Summerfield household, one 47-year-old Archibald Brown. Born in 1896, Archibald Brown was a miller, having for many years run the family business of Thomas James, T.J. Brown and Son, at Raleigh Flour Mills on London Hill which had opened in 1809 and was sail-powered until 1906, when it was converted and oil was used to power it. Archibald had served three years in the First World War and had returned home to work in the family mill, inheriting the family business in 1929 upon the death of his father, who left his son the sum of £20,405. Archibald had worked diligently there ever since, although by the time he'd inherited the business, he'd lived for some nine years with a chronic pain and discomfort that stemmed from a serious motorcycle accident he'd had and been seriously injured in back in 1920. It cannot be ascertained, but this accident may have triggered the progressive disease that debilitated him going forward, which by 1940 had rendered him having total paralysis from the waist down, and which worsened until by 1943, when he was aged 47, he was virtually bedridden. His wife Dorothy, who he'd married in 1922, was told at the same time that in tandem with his physical decline, his mental state was deteriorating rapidly also, and the prognosis for him was that he would end up with full-blown insanity. She had for many years carried this constant burden of caring for him, 
while the husband that she once knew faded away almost in body and spirit. Almost. Archibald had, since his marriage to Dorothy in 1922, ruled his family with an iron fist. It was an unhappy marriage that had always been up and down like Ken Barlow's arse, as we've heard, perhaps due to mental complications from the serious injuries in the motorcycle accident he'd suffered and had seemingly recovered from two years before the marriage, but the long-term effects of these may have influenced his later behaviour. For the next 15 years anyway, Archibald conducted humiliating and brutal conduct towards his family and made their lives somewhat unbearable. Now, it was a marriage that had produced two offspring. The eldest son of the Browns, Eric, had come along only a year after their marriage in 1923 and he was followed by a second son, Colin, in 1927. And they, like Dorothy, lived in fear of the tyrannical head of the household, or at least one of the children did. The younger child, Colin, as we said, three years Eric's junior, escaped the wrath of Archibald Brown. But for his wife and his eldest child, Archibald's excessive and downright unreasonable domestic demands, the curtailing of his wife Dorothy to visit friends and family who lived nearby, and his total verbal and even physical abuse became the established pattern of their family life under his total authoritarian rule. Similarly, with his eldest son Eric, the sadistic and boorish behaviour led to years of torment and a miserable life for the boy. In the words of Detective Superintendent George Totterdell, who was to play an important role in the elder brown son's later life, he described years later in his autobiography. Eric, she said, was about three and a half years old when Colin, the younger brother, was born. From the outset, the husband had favoured the younger boy, which had amounted to a positive dislike of the older lad. When Eric had been at Raleigh Grammar School, his home life by reason of his father's persecution had been miserable. At mealtimes, Mrs Brown had feared to let him sit close to his father, for at the slightest noise when he was eating, his father would strike the boy hard across the head. On one occasion, he'd struck him hard across the face for no reason at all. There were other senseless and inordinate punishments too. The writing of the line, I must not make a noise, 500 times, with every 10 lines marked off, the more easily to be corrected, which had taken the little boy all evening and had ended in tears when his younger brother was at playing. There was the running from the study door to the front door down the full length of the hall a 100 times, which had left the child exhausted, the periods of long, solitary confinement when the eldest boy was locked in a dark cupboard underneath the stairs, or even outside in the store shed, and all for the merest unintentional mistake on the boy's part. So, it sounds a pretty unhappy life so far, doesn't it? Understandably, you'd think, there has to be a history of instability there somewhere with the dad, surely, I mean... Who behaves like that if you're in a right mind? And indeed, there was. Across the th previous three generations of the Brown bloodline, there had been a history of mental illness, with Archibald's grandfather and great-grandfather, as well as an aunt, all documented as suffering mentally. His grandfather had even hung himself as a result. It was perhaps understandable then that Eric's school friends, 
of which there were few in being a generally shy and withdrawn child, noticed him to be a bit odd, shall we say, and it led to problems for him in the classroom. These problems worsened until by 1934 he had to be moved from Raleigh Grammar School and was placed in a boarding school near Walthamstow in East London. But Brightside, it's a bit of a respite from a shit home life this, isn't it? Being delivered from his father's malign influence, but who knows what seeds had already been sown within him by his father's abuse of the boy. Then, in 1938, the Brown home became even more miserable when Archibald Brown was struck down by spinal paralysis, which resulted in him losing the use of both his legs by 1940. His condition rapidly deteriorated over the years to the point that, by 1943, he was confined mostly to bed, but occasionally to an invalid chair, the precursor of a wheelchair known as a bath chair. Concurrent with this physical decline had been an increased emotional backlash from him, directed mainly at the long-suffering Dorothy. His attitude and behaviour towards her became even more intractable, with the handbell that he had beside his bed being constantly used day and night for the most trivial of things, and his calls for assistance becoming ever more demanding, even for ludicrous things as one of the flowers in the vase that he could see needed moving, things like that, you know. In the process of this, Archibald would still as best as he was able to rule over his family with a rod of iron. On one occasion, when his wife was feeding him, he tore at her clothes, he would often scratch or pinch her out of spite and pure contempt. He once tried to place his hands around her throat to strangle her, and would regularly, deliberately spill hot tea all over her. Now, in his debilitated physical condition, these outbreaks of violence were hardly life-threatening ones towards her, but they were, of course, unpleasant and frightening. However, in the latter days of his illness, Mrs. Brown was able to afford the services of a trained nurse to bear the brunt of her husband's care. Now, there's a slight confusion here through research. Several reports claim that by 1943, the Browns were on the third nurse that they'd employed, the first two put off by Archibald's cruel nature, by all accounts, as I'm sure you can believe from what you've heard in being a bit of a twat with them, whilst other accounts claim that there were three nurses employed who looked after Brown in a rotating shift system. What is clear through research is that both the family and he were taken with this third nurse mentioned, 46-year-old Elsie Mitchell, who lived at number 12 Hillview Road in Raleigh. Archibald had taken a liking to her, and she was an experienced nurse to difficult patients, so the arrangement was a satisfactory one, with no suggestion of any jealousy or impropriety whatsoever. Now, by this time, the youngest child, Colin, was off studying accountancy, and incidentally, he's very much a fleeting figure in the entire tale. There's little to no mention of him through any accounts, except to refer to the fact that the Browns had two sons. Eric, meanwhile, was finally in a vocation that he may have shown some aptitude and natural skill for. For the previous year, aged 19, he'd received his call-up papers, and by 1943 was a private in the 8th Battalion Suffolk Regiment based at Spilsby in Lincolnshire. He had at first worked in the rally branch of Barclays Bank in 1940 when he'd left school as a clerk cum teller, 
and where his behaviour at times could best be described as odd. Although most of the time he was there he was a proficient and conscientious worker, he was prone to what were described later as brainstorms, whereby he would fling his arms wildly into the air and then slam them down on the desk in front of him, beating out a rapid tattoo with his fists on the desk. Now, when later added to this strange behaviour were a number of minor fraudulent transactions on Eric Brown's part, the bank decided that enough was enough, and although he was not prosecuted, Eric was asked to resign as an alternative, after working there for two years. This was in 1942, which was to be a milestone one in his life. Following leaving the bank, he found a change of occupation and worked out in the open fields of his Uncle Fred's poultry farm off Lark Hill Road in Canowden for a time, until he reached the age of 18, and so became eligible for service in the armed forces, being called up by the army in October of that year. Like so many other young soldiers at that time, he probably felt that by joining and serving with what can best be described as a family, and if you're ex-forces, then you'll know exactly the feeling that I mean when I say that. The people you're with become closer than friends, don't they? That he was casting off the shackles of an unhappy home life, and it was time for him to move onwards. Although the future was uncertain back then, it did hold promise of some excitement. And above all, Eric was finally free, or so he believed, of his father's persecution. Although reportedly he and his father had been on better terms as he'd moved into his later teens, how could anybody forget the years of misery and abuse that had come beforehand? After completing his basic infantry training in Aldershot on the 1st of October 1942, Private Eric James Brown, I don't know whether he was a sex machine or not, found himself posted to the 8th Battalion Suffolk Regiment at Spilsby in Lincolnshire. By all accounts, he was a good soldier and took to his training well, and being an infantryman, this training had included lectures and demonstrations by the 8th Battalion Weapons Instructor Sergeant S.F. Smith on the mechanisms and correct uses of all kinds of firearms and explosives. Park that thought. Whilst Eric quickly settled down to military life, all hopes that he had of putting his past unhappiness behind him after joining the army were soon seemingly dashed, however, because back home in Raleigh, nothing had changed for the rest of the family. His mother was still being subjected to his father's tyrannical behaviour, which had, if anything, gotten worse as soon as his eldest son had left home, fuelled as it was by his almost total physical immobility. In a letter Eric received in the spring of 1943, his mother informed him of not only his father's deteriorating physical and mental condition, but also plaintively recounted to him the continuing ill-treatment and abuse that she continued to suffer at his hands. Following a written request to his commanding officer by his mother, in May and June of that year, Eric spent three weeks back at home on leave, ostensibly to help with the running of his father's milk during which he himself witnessed the treatment of which his mother had complained. In a conversation with his mother one night during this period, he remarked to her that his father had really gone downhill, and with him being so rude and rough with her, that Eric had inquired how and why she put up with it, saying, I don't know how you stick it. 
When he departed home at the end of his leave in June to return to his unit, the youth, who for so long had himself wretchedly suffered at his father's hands, and who now bore witness to the daily unhappiness that his mother, who he'd always had a close bond with, still lived with on a day-to-day basis, had decided that the time had come to put an end to the suffering of both his parents. Perhaps it was that sudden being away from the comfort and familiarity of home, his caring and devoted mother and their life, perhaps it was this that triggered something in Eric's brain, and he decided he would have to do something. By now convinced that his father too was a hapless victim of the crippling and debilitating illness that had struck him down, Eric had concluded that by eliminating his father, he would not only be releasing his mother from her distress, but he would also be delivering his father from his suffering. An act of mercy, if you like. The only questions remaining were when, and how, was he to achieve his objection. He'd soon hit upon the solution. Military camps today, and perhaps more so back in the operational theatre of World War II, by the very nature of their existence, have large stocks of various weapons and explosives within their boundaries, and Spilsby Barracks, where Eric was stationed, was no exception. Included amongst the variety of small arms and other weapons that were held on base were several explosives I mentioned earlier Eric had been instructed in the use of, and one of these was a relatively newly developed explosive known as the Number 75 Hawkins Grenade Mine. This explosive had been developed only the previous year, more versatile in design for use as a multi-purpose weapon. It could be used as an anti-tank mine, an anti-vehicle grenade or a demolition charge. Although it was a small rectangular mine that looked similar to a cycle lamp, no bigger than 3 inches wide and 6 inches long, it contained 1.5 pounds of ammonal explosive, an explosive made up of ammonium nitrate and aluminium powder. When an armoured vehicle such as a tank drove over the grenade, it cracked a chemical igniter inside it, which leaked acid onto the sensitive chemical, thus detonating the explosive. Now bearing in mind the detonation velocity of a monal explosive is approximately 4,400 metres a second, or some 9,842 miles per hour, it was particularly effective at damaging tanks and was easily enough to blow the tracks off them. For a bit of added firepower, several of these mines could be linked together in a daisy-chained formation, and then either strung across a road, or thrown at an enemy tank or other vehicle. And then, kaboom isn't the word. And there, in the Spilsby Depot Armoury, were almost 200 of these mines, 50 were decommissioned ones that were used for training purposes, but the other 145 of them were very functional indeed. There were also primers, igniters, detonators and instructional pamphlets available, all kept together in that nice neat military way. A very powerful weapon indeed. More than enough to blow your dad past that bloody idiot who jumped from the edge of the stratosphere. Eric decided that a weapon that was capable of disabling a tank should prove more than adequate for the much more modest, but equally as lethal, assignment for it that he had in mind. So apparently, without any great difficulty really, for back then there was little to no check kept upon them. I know, right? 
At the beginning of July 1943, Eric managed to acquire himself one of these Hawkins grenades, along with an igniter and a detonator, all of which he secreted away in his attache case, and as he'd anticipated, this disappearance passed at the time unnoticed. Now, during the leave period Eric had had in June, Dorothy Brown had unknowingly hastened her husband's demise by writing a letter to Eric's commanding officer, Captain J.L. Bell, requesting that Eric be granted a further period of compassionate leave. Ostensibly, the purpose of the letter was for Eric to again be at home to try to find someone to take over and run his father's business. But you have to think that as much of a reason for Dorothy requesting her eldest son being at home, at least for a time, was to support her and to give her some respite from a disabled and vexatious husband. Now I do understand the reaching out here. My own dad was very poorly for many years, and although he was nothing like the individual I was described whatsoever, his fab dad, I must stress that my mum still turned to me because she lived in the situation. Though there was nothing I could do, it was something shared, it was a reach out for support for her so I can understand that sentiment totally. Dorothy Brown's request was indeed considered sympathetically and was granted, as a result of which, the following month, Eric found himself once again back at home in Raleigh, this time having a compassionate leave period of three months. He arrived back at the family home on the 12th of July to find the domestic situation pretty much business as usual really. His father was his usual miserable and cantankerous self, whilst Dorothy Brown still submitted to her husband's every demand and accepted the abuse silently without protest. The elder Brown's son then spent the next 11 days following his return home working in his father's mill, but also found time over this period to disappear often into the family air raid shelter in the garden where he spent considerable periods just looking at the Hawkins grenade mine that he'd brought home from camp with him, stashed underneath a bundle of dirty washing in his attached case, and which he'd hidden in the large tool chest in the family's Anderson shelter. He'd debated for days exactly what to do with it, if anything with it, that is, because of course, that's a final step, isn't it, and there's no going back then. But as the days passed, the abuse and wretched existence continuing, and that handbell ringing like there's no tomorrow, all that he was witness to, the resolve grew stronger in Eric's mind that he should, no, he had to, deliver his father from his mental and physical suffering, and to bring his mother at last the release from the torment of waiting upon her husband at every clang of the handbell he had by his bedside to summon her, at all times of the day and night, to at last bring peace to the troubled family. After lunch, at about 1.30pm on the afternoon of Friday the 23rd of July, Eric shot over to the Anderson shelter and bolted the door from inside against surprise, and then gingerly removed the mine, the primer and detonator from the toolbox. He then set about priming it so it would be set off not by the weight of a tank or an armoured vehicle, as it was designed to, but by what he judged the weight of his father to be. The simple expedient of removing the four corner supports from beneath the pressure plate of the grenade allowed the plate to rest directly onto the body of the mine, thus requiring far less pressure than was normal for it to detonate. You can only imagine just how much care that must have taken to do, can't you? Finally, 
having satisfied himself that the device was still perfectly functional after the modifications he'd made to it. Looking across, he then picked it up extremely carefully, walked over to his father's bath chair, which was kept for storage in the shelter, and then slid it between the brown velveteen cushion of the chair and its canvas bottom, completely out of sight and unable to be felt through the cushion. Now the deed was ready and done, but Eric had had a right fright as he was doing so, for as he was priming it, the door to the Anderson shelter had rattled with someone trying to open the door. It was his father's nurse, Eileen Mitchell, coming to collect the wheelchair. One of the regular duties that Nurse Mitchell undertook when the weather was suitable for it was to take Mr. Brown out for a short walk in his chair, the only kind of outing that he was still able to enjoy by that time, towards the neighbouring village of Hockley and back. And with the weather on Friday, July the 23rd being like the start of the Simpsons, it was time for her to take Mr. Brown for his usual fresh air excursion. Nurse Mitchell had duly headed out into the garden of number 19, and over to the air raid shelter in the corner, which was, as we've said, where Archibald Brown's wheelchair was usually kept, but was puzzled, however, to find the door to the Anderson shelter bolted from the inside. She tried to open the door unsuccessfully for a few minutes, and so, grumbling away, went off to find Mrs. Brown to help her gain access. When the two women returned, however, they were both startled when the door of the shelter opened suddenly as they approached it, and Eric Brown emerged out of there, looking a bit sheepish, although other reports describe him as displaying a variety of emotions, from anger through to confusion and evasiveness. When they challenged him, and his mother asked him the reason for him being in there, and what on earth he was doing in there that required him needing the door locked, come on, you're better than that, Eric mumbled some excuse about looking for something inside there, and then made himself scarce, heading off into the house. His mother and Nurse Mitchell then took the wheelchair back over to the house and fetched Mr. Brown downstairs in his pyjamas, slippers and dressing gown. Between them, they then helped manoeuvre him over to it before they placed him down heavily into the chair. And can you guess what happened? Bugger all happened, that's what. After he had been between the two women helped into the chair and secured comfortably, with two pillows placed behind him for support, and in being warmly wrapped in a plaid travelling blanket, the ends of which were tucked neatly underneath the cushion, still nothing. Saying goodbye to Mrs. Brown, at about 1.45pm that afternoon then, Nurse Mitchell then set off for a walk with her ward. There was nothing unusual about their plans that day, they were merely heading for their usual walk along their usual route, which was for them to head down the steep London hill, and the gradient of it has not changed any even to this day, and to follow this down past Raleigh Church onto the B1013 and up towards the village of Hockley, before turning back after a mile and a half or so. They'd gone a good mile down this route, past Raleigh Church, and had just passed a house named Gatton's between here and Raleigh Town Centre, when Nurse Mitchell felt her ward shifting around in his chair. Knowing from their past walks that it was about this point on each journey that Mr. Brown used to enjoy stopping for a cigarette, Nurse Mitchell watched him fumbling around in the pocket of his dressing gown, trying to reach his cigarettes. Placing the brake on and heading around to the front of the chair to help him retrieve his cigarettes, lighting one for him 
Nurse Mitchell then headed back around to the rear of the wheelchair to continue pushing, thinking idly that it would soon be time to turn around and head for home. She'd only scarcely begun to move off once again, taking less than half a dozen steps, when Mr. Brown shifted himself in the chair ever so slightly, trying to settle himself more comfortably. It was to be Mr. Brown's last movement on this earth, for a split second later, he was dead. Within that half a dozen paces, there was suddenly a tremendous explosion that he took the brunt of. He most likely hadn't even had time to feel a thing. Suddenly, there was a terrific bang. I could instantly smell my hair burning, and a terrific heat came up from somewhere. I saw the head and shoulders of my patient in front, and I think I saw a leg in a tree. My own legs were pumping blood very badly. Small pieces of metal were embedded in them. I received treatment in a house, and I was admitted to hospital. That was how Elsie Mitchell later described the moment that her patient had been hurled into eternity. That she hadn't accompanied him on his one-way trip into oblivion was attributable solely to the pillows and cushions in the wheelchair that were between herself and the source of the explosion. Nurse Mitchell was knocked briefly unconscious from the force of the blast which had knocked her off her feet and some distance away, a blast so powerful that it had left a crater in the road and had put the windows through on houses on either side of the street. Residents of Hockley Road were used to enemy action during the Second World War, but although there were aircraft in the vicinity during the afternoon, there had been no prior warning of enemy action, no sirens or anything that they'd come to be used to. The shock of the blast then stunned everyone in the immediate vicinity, for for a moment they thought that an enemy plane had dropped a bomb, and they were waiting for the rest of the salvo. Indeed, local newspapers the next day were full of the story of a local invalid being the unfortunate recipient of a direct hit from a butterfly bomb. As it was, those who were first on the scene found it was obvious that there was a fatality and that nothing could be done for the man concerned, for whilst the woman lay moaning and barely conscious in the road nearby, bleeding heavily from the terrible injuries to her legs, whilst of a charge, there was no sign. He wasn't apparent until someone noticed the remains of a human leg, suspended some 15 feet up in a nearby tree, and his head and torso lying further along in the road. Another leg, his right one, still clad in its slipper, lay in the front garden of a property 48 feet away. The further remains of his body were soon discovered nearby, interspersed amongst the devastating tangle of twisted and scorched metal. Imagine that for a scene, eh? Whilst Nurse Mitchell was rushed by ambulance to South End Municipal Hospital, taken from the sanctuary of a nearby house where she'd been carried into, Police Sergeants Gowers and Patterson, Constable Leggett and Air Raid Warden Fuller, who were soon at the scene, closed the road off at each end and then made a preliminary search and an examination of the scene, as well as the grisly task of recovering the remaining body parts. They noticed that the road surface was scorched and pitted with a small number of holes and a small crater, and managed to recover several small pieces of twisted metal that were left lying nearby. But, once it was established that no enemy aircraft had been in the vicinity at the time, 
And that would have been the direct hit of all direct hits, that one, wouldn't it? Bloody hell. Explosives experts were then summoned to the scene. When they managed to identify the twisted hunk of metal as what had once been a bath chair, from an examination of the mangled remains, experts took little time in reaching the conclusion that the source of the explosion had generated from between the seat and the axles of the wheelchair. It had not hit an unexploded bomb lying in the road at all. This was a conclusion that was later supported by the findings of Dr. J.M. Gilmore, who had performed the autopsy in what remained of Mr. Brown, and who stated that the explosion had happened from underneath him, not from above. Furthermore, four of the pieces of twisted metal that were discovered by the first responders were identified by the explosives experts as being part of an anti-tank grenade mine, something like a number 75 Hawkins grenade. How this had caused the blast was a question which vexed them, however. Even when Nurse Mitchell was interviewed when she'd recovered enough to be, she could shed no light on this. It was miraculous that she was even still alive. She was but a few feet from the explosion, which was calculated as being about two feet in the air, and one lurid claim through research says that she'd actually heard the sound of her employer's body parts falling around her. Archibald Brown had taken the full force of the blast, and the frame, the pillows and cushions, had shielded her just enough. But the twisted remnants of the explosive meant it was unmistakably a number 75 Hawkins grenade. Know your shrapnel. I bet they're fun in the pub, aren't they? Now, powerful as these grenades were, they hadn't learned to walk and placed themselves somewhere of their own accord. So it was then, now established beyond any doubt, that Archibald Brown's death had been the result of a deliberate act, rather than from him being an unfortunate casualty of war. The CID department of the Essex Constabulary, who had been informed and who were monitoring the situation, now became fully involved here, with Detective Chief Inspector Harold Draper and Detective Inspector Jack Barkway setting the resulting investigation in motion before at the direction of Assistant Chief Constable Crockford Upon his return from a period of leave, it was placed under the overall command of Detective Superintendent George Totterdell, the head of Essex CID. Detective Superintendent Totterdell, known to his colleagues as Tot, had some 31 years' service in the Essex Police by that time, and after a brief foray serving in the Royal Naval Air Service, had returned to the police and become a CID officer in 1921 rising to becoming the county's first superintendent a decade later. A quietly spoken, grey-haired individual, Totterdell had over the years developed the attributes that form part of every successful investigator's makeup: Patience, doggedness and an unwavering nature, an unfailing eye for detail and an almost sixth sense that had often prompted him to pursue a particular line of inquiry when his less tenacious colleagues would have been satisfied with their initial impressions and conclusions. This last ability was to prove especially useful during the rally bath chair case, as it was to become known. As the investigation advanced then, numerous statements were taken from witnesses and others whom it was thought may be able to throw some light on the inquiry including the dead man's widow and his two children. Now, in a five-hour interview, Dorothy Brown did make what appeared to be a comprehensive statement, 
but after reading it, Detective Superintendent Totterdell was left with a very distinct feeling that it wasn't quite the full story there on paper. She was holding something back, he felt. Nonetheless, her statement, in which she claimed that she didn't know what a grenade looked like and had never seen either of her sons with any explosives, contained sufficient background information about her marriage, or the state of it rather, and her late husband's behaviour towards his family to persuade Detective Superintendent Totterdell and his team that her eldest son Eric warranted further and more detailed investigation. This was duly actioned and was to prove rewarding, for after checking and verifying the facts that Dorothy Brown had supplied, they came up with further interesting information concerning one Eric James Brown. They found out that not only had he and his unit received extensive instruction in the operation of the very anti-tank mine that was found to have killed his father on the 21st of April of that year, but also, more ominously, that Eric had unrestricted access to the very armoury where 150 of these commissioned mines were kept at Spilsby Depot and would have had very little difficulty in obtaining a mine, an igniter and a detonator and out of the 150 of these mines that should have been there, a check of the armoury showed that there were only 149. Your spidey sense would be going almost 20 years before spidey sense was even a thing, eh? So, the means is there. By this time also, inquiries among the friends, neighbours and relatives of the Browns had confirmed the appalling treatment of Dorothy and Eric by Archibald Brown over the years so your motive is there too. Back in Raleigh, experiments with an identical bath chair to that used by Archibald Brown on the day of his death had confirmed that a mine, say, one that was suitably modified by having the four corner supports of it removed, if that could be placed underneath the seat cushion, then it would remain unnoticed by the occupant of the chair. When it was sat on in precisely the correct position to allow the necessary pressure upon it, the device would then detonate with predictable and catastrophic results. But why had it not then gone off previously? By the time all of this evidence had been collated and assessed, it was mid-August 1943, and Detective Superintendent Totterdell and his team were convinced that the picture they had before them was the correct one, that Eric Brown, the eldest son of the victim, had had the motive, means and opportunity to kill his father. A conference was then held early in the morning of the 20th of August with all those involved in the investigation and where, after discussions, it was agreed that the next logical step should be a further interview with Eric Brown. Immediately following this conference then, wasting no time and still very early that morning, Eric Brown was brought to Raleigh Police Station and before long was sat in an interview room opposite Detective Superintendent Totterdell DCI Draper and Detective Inspector Barkway, who was later to become head of Essex CID himself, by the way. With each of the officers wondering just how the boyish-looking, bespectacled youth sat across from them would respond to the questions that they were about to put to him. Superintendent Totterdell began by asking Brown to explain his presence in the air raid shelter where the bath chair had been kept on the afternoon that his father had died to which he gave an evasive and non-committal reply. Undeterred, the detectives pressed on with their questioning, all three in turn probing him with their carefully phrased questions 
hoping for a response that was contradictory, self-incriminatory, or was indicative of his innocence. It was a laborious process, and by lunchtime, very little progress indeed had been made. It was only once Draper and Barkway had been sanctioned to go off and get themselves some lunch, leaving Detective Superintendent Totterdell and Eric Brown alone in the interview room, that Brown's obvious reluctance to discuss his father's death seemed to lift. He now chatted much more freely to Totterdell, ultimately, almost matter-of-factly, telling the officer of the years of family unhappiness and tragedy that had led to his decision to kill his father, and describing the method that he had adopted to do so, saying he had stolen the device from the army, and used his interesting gadgets to adapt the pressure plate to detonate with a much lighter weight than a tank. When the two inspectors returned, now having unburdened himself, Brown readily agreed when it was suggested to him that he should make a written statement to the effect of what he'd just told the senior officer. The lengthy statement was then duly transcribed by Detective Inspector Barkway, and it clinched the case against Brown, with part of it reading, I quote, I want to tell you the whole story. For the last four and a half years, and even before that, life has ceased to exist for my mother but has become a complete drudgery as a result of my father's treatment towards her. I decided that the only real way in which my mother could lead a normal life, and my father to be released from his sufferings, was for him to die mercifully. I know, yes, being blown up in a wheelchair with an anti-tank mine is the epitome of merciful, isn't it? His statement continued, I therefore decided to cause his death in a manner which would leave him no longer in suffering. This was only decided upon a matter of days before his death. After nearly a fortnight of seeing just exactly what my mother was forced to endure, I realised that this could not be allowed to go on. Primarily for my mother's sake, but also to a lesser degree my father's sake, I placed the grenade under my father's chair, not realising at the time that, although it would kill him, just what his death would mean to me and to all those near him. My father is now out of his suffering and I earnestly hope that my mother will now have a more happy and normal life. This, I declare, is the only motive I had for bringing about my father's death. His death was, in truth, a great shock to me, but what I did, I am not afraid to answer for. After then checking and signing each page of the statement, Eric James Brown was formally charged with the murder of his father on the 23rd of July at Raleigh. Brown was to make two appearances at South End Petty Sessional Court before he was committed for trial, to be held over the 21st and 22nd of September, and in the meantime, while he was awaiting trial in Chelmsford Prison, there was a development. Dorothy Brown now sought out Detective Superintendent Totterdell and offered to volunteer another statement, a more in-depth one. He'd felt all along that her first statement had not given the entire account, as we said, that she was holding something back, and his instinct now proved to be correct. Now that her son had been arrested and charged with murder, Dorothy Brown no longer felt the need to protect him, and therefore made a second, much more detailed statement in which she admitted that she knew Eric was mechanically minded, he was able to mend their radio whenever it was knackered, and would have had the ability to place an explosive charge. 
She now also fully described her late husband's treatment over many years of not just herself, but of his eldest son also. So unhappy was Dorothy Brown with her life that she'd often thought of leaving her unpleasant husband and even had a suitcase packed, but had just never gotten that far, almost thinking it her duty to care for him, as was a generational thing gone by. It was a statement that made for sad and distressing reading, but that did go some way to explain her son's state of mind during the last few weeks of her husband's life. The committal proceedings lasted for two days, through which Eric Brown was represented by Mr J.P. Nolan K.C., who was King's counsel back then, of course, while the case for the Crown was left in the capable hands of K.C. Mr J.F. Claxton. Opening proceedings, Mr Claxton said in his address to the court, It is a murder which, in the submission of the prosecution, was committed by extraordinary means. The accused is charged with murdering his father by placing underneath his invalid chair an anti-tank mine, with the result that owing to the explosion that followed, his father was literally blown to pieces. All the nurse remembers was that she was terribly injured about the legs, and that, as far as she could see at the time, her charge and the bath chair had disappeared. Portions of metal, later identified as those of an anti-tank mine, were then found. After outlining the events of the 23rd of July and calling Nurse Mitchell, who visibly limped up to the witness box, to describe to the court the final moments leading up to the explosion, as we've heard, Mr Claxton then called Dorothy Brown up to the stand. In answer to his question, she described how, During the last two years, I was unable to do anything right for my husband. Occasionally, he would tip his tea over me, and when irritated, he would grab my clothes and pull me down. He once went for my throat, and when I was feeding him, he scratched at my clothes. In a rage, he had scratched my arm. She added that she had no doubt that her son was aware of all these happenings. In answer to Mr Nolan, she agreed with his suggestion that although her husband had treated Eric badly when he was a child, since the onset of her husband's illness five years before, he and Eric had been on better terms. This was a direct contradiction of what she'd told Detective Superintendent Totterdell only a few days previously, however. Mrs Brown ended her testimony by telling the court of the worsening treatment that she'd received at Archibald Brown's hands during the final four months of his life, serving to establish a motive for the murder that, however, was still inexcusable, was to many of those listening at least an understandable one. By the end of the second day of proceedings, Mr Claxton had called his other witnesses, including Brown's former battalion weapons instructor, Sergeant Smith, who had told the court, Since about 15th of January, I've been instructing soldiers. My syllabus included lectures on British weapons and explosives, and on 21st of April last, I gave a lecture on the Hawkins No. 75 grenade mine, along with others. The accused should have attended this lecture, but I could not swear that he did so. However, Sergeant Smith could not swear that Brown did not attend the lecture either. Others, expert and non-expert witnesses alike, also gave their evidence. They included Dr Gilmore, the pathologist who performed the post-mortem examination on what was left of Archibald Brown, 
Captain Bell, Eric Brown's commanding officer, who testified to his being on compassionate leave at the time of the murder, and explosives experts who were called upon to describe the nature of the device used, the apparent modifications that had been made to it by the accused, and the lethal effect it would have had when detonated. Each police officer and authority figure who had attended the crime scene only shortly afterwards, Police Sergeants Gowers and Patterson, Police Constable Leggett and Warden Fuller, each described the scene as, be- as had been found very soon after the explosion. And finally, Inspectors Draper and Barkway and Superintendent Totterdell, who each between them gave details of the police investigation, culminating in the final interrogation of Brown, his admissions and his subsequent written confession. At the conclusion of the prosecution case, Mr Nolan reserved his client's defence, unhappy that his client's confession could be called as evidence, and even suggesting that it had been obtained by coercion, with the threat of something happening to his mother if he didn't own up, a suggestion which was strenuously denied by each officer. Whilst the court chairperson, Magistrate W.G. Rayner, immediately committed Eric Brown for trial at the Essex Assizes. The trial of Eric Brown for the murder of his father, Archibald, took place at Shire Hall in Chelmsford some two months later, on the 4th of November, before a packed courtroom and presiding Mr Justice Atkinson, and lasted for just a single day, where he issued a plea of not guilty by reason of diminished responsibility. Newspaper reports at the time described, a dark-haired, pale-faced youth in a neat blue suit with an open-necked white shirt. His hands were clasped behind his back. There, his interest in the proceedings appeared to terminate. He seemed indifferent to his surroundings throughout the trial. His counsel, Mr Cecil Havers Casey, made no attempt to the court to deny that his client had indeed caused the willful death of Archibald Brown. In the wealth of the evidence already presented, that would be like trying to eat soup with a bloody fork, wouldn't it? But instead, his defence was based solely on Eric Brown's state of mind at the time. Did he know what he was doing? And if so, then did he know what he was doing was wrong? Counsel for the Crown, Sir Charles Doughty Casey, after outlining the evidence that had been heard at the committal proceedings and showing the jury both the mangled remains of the bath chair as well as a number 75 Hawkins grenade, although a training one, I must stress, then called Detective Inspector Barkway to the witness box. When he was cross-examined by Mr Havers, Detective Inspector Barkway told the court that inquiries had established that there was a history of insanity running within the generations of the Brown family, and also recounted to the court the strange behaviour of Eric Brown himself when he'd worked earlier at Barclays Bank. Dr Roland Hill, a neurologist and psychiatrist who was called by the defence, said that he had reached the conclusion after examining Brown whilst he'd been on remand that he was suffering from the early stages of schizophrenia, was chronically shy, and lived in a fantasy world, saying, I am of the opinion that the accused had not a normal perception of the difference between right and wrong. He would have a wholly distorted idea of what he was doing. He has told me that if he realised the bomb would go off and destroy his father, he would never have done it. He also told me he felt he had done God's will, and then he burst into tears. 
I think he picked up the bomb in a wave of emotion, like a person in a dream, and then he put it instinctively under the cushions of the chair. I do not think he thought it out in a deliberate way. At one stage, he told the court, he'd asked Brown why he had done this thing. Brown's response? He answered vaguely and then said, If someone had been standing by my side to tell me what would have been the result of my actions, I would never have done it. He then burst into tears. Though it was retorted by the prosecution that Brown's statement claimed that he knew what he was doing, Dr Hill pointed out that this was made much later. To rebut the evidence of Dr Hill, the prosecution called before the court Dr R.G. Lister, the chief medical officer at Chelmsford Prison who told the court that having seen and spoken to Brown every day since he'd been admitted to the prison hospital on the 21st of August, he had concluded that he was as sane as the next person. The doctor added that, The only thing that might be regarded as an indication of insanity was that on the 25th of October, he endeavoured to commit suicide by cutting his neck with a knife. It was a genuine attempt, but it was not a very serious wound. He retorted when defence KC Mr Havers asked him if he considered it to be serious in relation to Brown's mental state. Yes, but I do not think that everyone who commits suicide is insane. Dr Hill, who had examined Brown after this incident, was now recalled to the witness box and said that this suicide attempt was consistent with Brown suffering from schizophrenia. He told the court, he has never become properly adjusted to the outside world. He told me that he came to prison in a happy, buoyant frame of mind, and then he suddenly realised for the first time that by what he had done, people might call him a murderer. That had a depressing effect on him, and he attempted suicide. The jury came to the conclusion that the brainstorms Eric was documented as having, the blowing up of his father, and the attempt to cut his own throat, could hardly be regarded either singly or collectively as the acts of a rational individual, and after retiring for merely 45 minutes, the jury returned with a unanimous verdict of guilty but insane. Mr Justice Atkinson, who had not seemed convinced in his summing up that Brown was insane, as suggested, forthwith ordered that Eric Brown be detained at His Majesty's pleasure until it be known, which is, as we've heard before, effectively a life sentence. Thus ended a very tragic case that surprisingly, although of course there were more world-shattering events to preoccupy readers with going on at the time, attracted very little press coverage, for there isn't a great deal to research about the case, unless you've got quite a fair library as I do. That Eric Brown was insane there can be little doubt of, but whether the insanity was hereditary or it arose as a result of the years of his unhappy childhood, allied to the years of distress he'd experienced at witnessing his mother suffering the terrible treatment at his father's hands, is arguable. Dr Hill indicated that the latter of these was the case, when he said that Brown was suffering from the early stages of schizophrenia, but the court had, of course, also heard testimony that there was an established mental illnesses in the Brown family bloodline. Wherever the truth lies, and it being so long ago now, despite the circumstances of the death, you can't help but feel a certain sympathy and compassion for Brown, who at such a young age, after years of suffering at the hands of his father, was so confused and distraught by it all, 
that he could see the death of his father as the only answer and acted in a way that he thought was merciful, using an anti-tank mine to blow someone up. Yeah, there's no question of insanity there, I would say. Eric Brown was to spend 32 years in psychiatric care, including spending several years at Broadmoor, and was released in 1975, still aged just 51. Following this, he faded into obscurity, where he went to live or whether he came to the notice of authorities ever again, none of it is documented. Today, he is more likely than not deceased, for he would be 98 years old if he is still alive. There's also no record available of his mother's life following his son's conviction, whether she remarried at all, etc. Colin Brown remained the forgotten man, as I told you he was throughout this tale, but Nurse Mitchell, once she'd recovered, did reportedly continue with her nursing career for the rest of her working life, although for the remainder of her life, she walked with a limp and had partial paralysis to her arm. Detective Superintendent Totterdell's biography was published in 1956 under the title of A Country Copper, and when referencing the bath chair case, his conclusion was that the jury's verdict of guilty but insane was a right one. There was no apparent financial reason for Eric's action, and he must have known that he would be a prime suspect in the death once it was discovered it was murder. He had also not considered the possibility of the death or serious injury of Nurse Mitchell. But the mystery remained, and still remains, why the explosion did not occur when the victim was first lowered onto the chair at the back of Summerfield. Perhaps that was what Eric had intended, but at that location he might also have killed his mother as well as his father and the nurse. He must also have been certain of the route they would have taken on their walk for had the nurse chosen to make a right turn into Raleigh High Street for a change, there could have been many more casualties, many more. The epitaph, the stark facts surrounding the death of Archibald Brown that summer's day in July 1943, can be summed up as were recorded on Essex County Police Form R1175-130 Crime Reference Report 1396-B21, which was dated the 11th of January 1944, and reads as follows. Deceased son Eric James Brown obtained one Hawkins 75 grenade mine from a military store during the course of his military duties, and whilst on leave, placed it in the seat of his father's invalid chair. Deceased was being wheeled by nurse when there was an explosion, killing him instantly and seriously injuring the nurse. It's almost like the tweet of what happened that, isn't it? I came across this tale several years ago and found it a memorable, fascinating one. And I ask you, how are you ever going to not have a tale in where a son blows up his father? Who I don't mind saying did sound a bit of a twat-like before any illness with an anti-tank mine. Of course that's going in. It was originally planned to be part of a trilogy of tales that took place in the same year but I've decided to save the other two for another time. But they will come, trust me. Now, there are likely easier methods of killing someone who's mostly bedridden, a pillow, an overdose, or something like that. But an anti-tank mine, grab the bull by the bollocks, eh? That will definitely do it all right. Obtaining a mine and the danger posed to himself to adapting it to go off 
shows to me just what mental state Eric was in at the time. And yet, I get the feeling that with his insanity, he would never have been directed at anybody else but his father. I don't want to say he would have been harmless, because he did blow up his dad with an anti-tank mine after all, but I can't help thinking that not many others would have had to worry from him. Granted, he was severely mentally ill, spending 32 years inside a secure hospital, but he was ultimately deemed well enough for release, and I like to think that he went on to have the remainder of his life in somewhat happiness, the same as I hope that his mother did, and even his shadowy brother. Archibald, meanwhile, well I can't muster up any sympathy for really, and I'm not trying to sound harsh here, but as I said, he sounded the right horrible twat, didn't he? even before the effects of any illness, which sounded like the early onset of dementia to me, or perhaps was even the hereditary mental illness rearing its head. Personally, I think it very much a case of what goes around, comes around, in however much a drastic way. As for the mine not detonating when he was first placed upon it, I think that can only be one of those bizarre coincidences or occurrences that you read about. I don't think there can be any other way to explain it than what's already been supposed, as you've heard. What do you think? I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale of The Exploding Dad, which you can do so in the episode thread that's up on the Patreon site, or you can, if you like, get in touch through any of the show's social media links. I always look forward to hearing from you folks wherever and whenever. It's wrap-up time here now, then. So it's time for me to scoot and reach once again into the abyss of the strange and macabre tales from deepest, darkest UK and Ireland to bring to you. You can, of course, catch me on Truer Crime Thursdays on The Regular Enthusiast, and I shall see you back here, same back time, same back channel, for another bonus tale the next time around. I thank you once again for your kind and generous support of the show. You are each and every one fabulous. Until we speak again soon then, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.